Good to be with you all again this morning. We're in the midst of, if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, which is the case in the summer, people are coming and going, but we're in a short four-week series. We do a summer book series every year, and this year we're reading through together this book, Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stetzer. The subtitle here is How to Be, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at its worst. Uh, and I wanted to bring this book to your attention in hopes that we might be prepared to engage our increasingly polarized and digitized society with the hope that we have in Jesus. I've got that this is a, this is a challenge. And uh, I don't know if this is going to, there we go. Uh, there's a lot to this. Some people have said I'm a little overwhelmed by the content, uh, and, and that's okay. Uh, part of, of, of my job as the pastor of this congregation is to help comfort and guide and, and provide solace and care in different times, but also uh, I really see my job as God has called me to equip believers in Jesus for the work of the ministry in the world that he set us in. That God has equipped us to be at work in the world around us, which requires effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires endurance to do the work that God has called us to. And if I'm left to myself in my own strength, sometimes I just want to crawl into a hole and be with people that are just like me because it's more comfortable. That's the nature of the flesh. Every single person on earth will lean towards comfort if given the option. We will lean towards what we understand, what we agree with, if we're given the option. If we're given the option, things will not get better but worse if we just let life happen to us. Amen? I wish it were the case that I could go away and come back and my yard looked better than when I left. I wish that I didn't have... If I I don't plant flowers, things aren't nice, but if I leave it by itself, I get weeds. That's just the way life is. It's part of the fall. The Lord said there'd be toil that we would deal with in the world. And there'd be struggle, and there'd be challenge. And as believers in Jesus, it's our job to engage the challenge around us, even when it's hard. Not to the point where we fail or give up because we don't have hope, but to encourage one another, build each other up, spur each other on and say, you know what? God's called me to a place that's not my home, because my home isn't here. And I want to be well equipped with the Word of God, understanding what He has said, so that I can lovingly engage a culture that doesn't know Him. Amen? If I'm honest with you, I don't always want to do that. I want to stick to where I'm comfortable, where I'm safe. But that's not the call that God's put on our lives. And so we'll manage that tension uh, between pushing so hard that we're overly exhausted and not at our best, and we'll rest. But we won't rest too long because then we've got to get back out into doing the things that God has called us to do. And so that's the tension that we're in. So if you're feeling that, if you're, if you're looking at this saying, I don't know if I want to think about a world that doesn't agree with the way that I think. I think I'd rather just bury my head in the sand and, and do something different. And just be around people that agree like me and think like me, but, but we're called to a different place. Amen? So Lord, we do ask even just for more courage, more wisdom, more discernment to know uh, how to do what you've called us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. As I get settled here, I feel better. I feel free. <laughs> Could you tell I felt a little tied in my doghouse over here? I feel free. I'm all right. Come join you. So especially in the midst of this political tension that we're in, we've been called to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. 
So that means engaging the city and asking some questions. So we have some questions uh, as we go through here. In an age of outrage, some things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, one, how does a follower of Jesus respond when their worldview doesn't match the world's view? We talked about that two weeks ago in the life of Daniel. What does it look like to live in exile? It's a question we need to be thinking about. These are questions that we can think about while we're reading this book. Secondly, how does one strategically engage in Internet platforms, which we all do every day, but in a place where genuine human interaction is in steep decline? Real relationship doesn't exist online. But that's where we engage in pseudo-relationship, but it's just a digital image, it's a word, it's a quote, it's a tweet, and we lose the heart of the person behind it. That's a question. The third question, is there space for pause and reflection in the midst of endless Twitter wars and and news cycles? Is there a place where we can just stop and breathe? Is there a space for pause and reflection? And then finally, what does a follower of Jesus do with their anger and frustration when someone's hijacked their culture? Someone's hijacked my culture. What do I do when I don't like it? These are questions that we get to engage with, and it's fun. Four considerations that we're looking at in this series. Two weeks ago, again, we talked about living in a post-Christian context, a world that doesn't embrace Jesus like it used to, or a culture, a nation that doesn't embrace Jesus like it used to. How do we bring the hope of life and truth of Jesus to that place? Last week, Pastor Chris Nixon brought a message on what do we do when we're angry, and understanding that anger isn't bad, but outrage is. And outrage is nothing more than unchecked anger. It's anger that's not submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. The prophets in the Old Testament were angry. Jesus got angry. But always, we can get angry with our kids. We can get angry with our spouse, with our friends. But so long as our anger doesn't get unchecked, so long as it doesn't become about me and my pride, it remains about Jesus and justice, then anger's okay. But what do we do with it? We talked about that last week. This week... We're going to talk about viewing our world through the lens of the gospel in a message called 2020 Vision. So the point this morning in in the third part of this series is centered around the what, the why, and the how of a biblical worldview. 2020 Vision, the kind that I have with my glasses on, because once I put these on, I can see what it says in the back. I can see clearly 2020 Vision is a must It's an absolute must for followers of Jesus who want to positively engage our rapidly changing culture in the year 2020. That's what's coming. We need 2020 vision for the year 2020. A worldview, as defined by David Nobel, says a worldview is the framework from which we must view reality. It makes sense of the life in the world around us. That's a worldview. It's any ideology, any philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. That's a worldview. It's just the lens that we see everything through. Today we're going to talk about a biblical worldview, because there's all kinds of worldviews. There's all kinds of ways that we can look through the lens and determine what is truth and what is reality. 
But a Christian worldview answers yes to certain questions. And I want to put the questions up here today so you have an understanding of what we're talking about as people who are called to engage a world that doesn't believe or hold the same values that we do as spirit-filled believers in Jesus. These are questions we need to answer for ourselves. Do we believe that absolute moral truth exists? Do we believe that there is one truth? Secondly, is that truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Did that actually happen 2,000 years ago? Did, was there a man that walked on the earth who was the very fullness of God who lived a sinful life? Did it happen or didn't it? We've got to decide for ourselves to hold a Christian worldview. Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule today? Some people would say that God created this and spun it off and he's gone. Do you want to find their worldview? As their parents created them, spun them off, and then their parents were gone. That defines their understanding of who God might be. That's why God put us here to help bring a different understanding, a different experience for people who got created and spun off and left by themselves. That's why we're here, to help introduce something different. Is salvation a gift from God that can't be earned? Or if I work hard enough in my own strength, I'll get to heaven. Some people believe that. Is Satan real? Is hell real? That's a huge debate in culture today. A lot of people are saying, yeah, hell's kind of sounds a little scary. So let's just say it doesn't actually exist. It's a huge movement. I believe that it does. And I believe that God doesn't want anyone to be there. Does a Christian have a responsibility to share their faith? Well, if I want to, yeah, it's not really comfortable, so I'll let somebody else do that. Does the Bible say that that's our job? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? These are questions. Here's the interesting thing. This is the reason why we must engage now. There is an urgency to this. When George Barna, who is a, who is a, a, a spirit-filled researcher who does large, he has a Barna research and he's the president, was the president of Barna research to do a lot of studies to understand where Christ fits in culture. They asked tens of thousands of evangelical Christians this question. These questions, these eight questions, only 9% of evangelical Christians answered yes to all of those eight questions. 9%. Now, they might have answered yes to seven of eight, or most of them, but I would argue today that a biblical worldview holds these things as absolutes. Now, we have to be willing to listen to other people. We don't just say, this is how it is, and so I'm not talking to you about it, or you're stupid because you don't believe like me, or throw it up all on social media and just be outraged. But these are things that we need to help people move towards yes on with grace and love and mercy in the life and hope of Jesus. A worldview. Today we're going to investigate the Apostle Paul's instructions concerning worldviews in his letters to Corinth and also Coloss. And through this study, through this exercise, if you want to open your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look for answers concerning what comprises a biblical worldview. We just talked about that a little bit. We're going to talk about why it even matters that we hold to a view like this. We'll talk a little bit about the things that threaten a worldview that is founded on Jesus. 
and then what we can do to sharpen our own vision, to be people who center their convictions and their beliefs and their behaviors around the work and the ministry and the power of Jesus Christ. So what is it? Why does it matter? What can take it away? And how do I make it stronger? Okay? These are the things about worldview we're looking at today. The Bible records countless examples throughout history where faithful people representing God's point of view were sent to cultures that had opposing viewpoints. We might feel alone in this. The good news of the Word of God is that we're not alone. This is chock full of examples of helping us understand what it looks like to have a view that's different than the place where God put us. Guess what? That's why He put us there. To influence, to be salt, to be light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are ambassadors as though Christ was making his appeal through us. That's a biblical worldview. So Moses did it in Egypt. Daniel did it in Babylon. Jesus did it in Jerusalem. This is an interesting one because the people who held an opposing view, worldview to him, were the people that God called his closest friends. Interesting enough that sometimes just because we get called or selected doesn't mean that our worldview is intact. If we get lazy, well, I'm a Christian, so my worldview must be right. <laughs> the Jews said, well, we're Jews, so the worldview must be right. They were wrong. It, it makes me go back to my worldview over and over and over again to make sure I'm not off base. Because guess what? I get off base. Anyone else get off base a little bit sometimes? Paul was put in situations of opposing worldviews all around the ancient world in his missionary journeys. The Apostle Paul, we have a picture of him. This is on his Twitter feed. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote... The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote half the New Testament. He's the author of First and Second Corinthians. These were letters written to encourage followers of Jesus who were living in Corinth. Paul himself made three separate visits to the city of Corinth, which was in Greece. So a long, long way from where he started across the sea. Four to five hundred miles he traveled at different times and on boats and on ships and by land and Paul would travel. And what was he doing? He was sharing the good news of Jesus that was exploding out of Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given to the people of God at Pentecost. When the Spirit of God falls, when persecution comes, the word of God spreads. That's a worldview. That's what happened. The reason why the gospel got from Jerusalem to Corinth was because people were trying to shut it down. And the word of God cannot be stopped. The spirit of God will not be stopped. So he made visits to cities all over the world. In fact, I think we have a map up here, some of the places that he went. So this is where it all started down here in Jerusalem. We see other major cities. We'll talk about what Jesus wrote or what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Talk about what he wrote to the church in Corinth. But Corinth is way over here. That's how far... The Word of God was traveling in a very, very short period of time. And that's a long distance back then. He visited in 50 A.D. for about 18 months. That was his longest visit to Corinth. That's when he started planting churches that probably were about this big. And then he'd plant one church and another and another. And those people would then take their faith and grapple with culture. And then he'd write letters to be like, okay, i got to tell you a little bit more because this is a long process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. He went back 
in 55 AD, and from these letters we know that that was a short and painful visit. We don't know exactly what happened, but sometimes there's conflict within the body of Christ. Happened back then too. It was a short visit, but then reconciled and returned again. He didn't just leave them to be because there was a disagreement of some sorts. He went back in 57 AD and stayed for at least three months. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians in large part to reinforce for brand new followers of Jesus how a Christ-centered worldview might impact a person's ability to engage their culture. He was doing the same thing we're trying to do this morning. Center our thinking and our belief around what God's word says and then go be it. We're doing the same thing. Isn't that great? God's still alive. He's still working today. And Corinth was a filthy city. Filthy. When they talk about immorality in the Bible, in those days when they talked about things that were really immoral, they'd say that was to Corinthicize. They turned the noun into a verb for the evilest acts that could be imagined. Corinth was a filthy, broken, lost city, and the gospel was being planted there. So Paul had to write again and again to these folks because coming out of that, a lot of the people that were receiving Jesus had a worldview that was different. So when people come to Christ or they're interested or curious about Jesus, we can't assume very much. And we can't get shocked when when people come with a worldview that's different than ours. We take people at face value, standing grace and truth, just like Jesus modeled for us when we go into our community. Don't let anything that you hear about what happens in people's lives shock you. Don't, Don't turn your nose. Don't say that's unclean. Engage. It's going to be messy. We need the power of the Spirit to do it. But 2 Corinthians was written from Macedonia. That's this whole province over here. It was written from there back to Corinth. That's when the letter of 2 Corinthians was written. Paul wrote that letter because the first letter they had received from him was received enthusiastically. He understood that his investment of a worldview that looked like Jesus was changing the lives of people. Timothy, his disciple, delivered that letter and came back to Paul and said, Hey, guess what? They want more. They're hungry for the truth because everything their culture has to offer them is leaving them, leaving them flat, leaving them dry, leaving them stranded. Give them more. As disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus, we keep giving people a little bit more. Just a little bit at a time. And if it's God's word, it doesn't return void and they'll come back for a little bit more. How do we help people stay on track? That's what was going on. He wrote that. And secondly, he wrote that letter to respond to some things. Paul had some critics. He had some opposition. And so those who opposed him were saying things about him and saying things about the gospel that weren't true. It was hurting believers. So Paul wrote another letter in response to those things. And 2 Corinthians is chocked full of truth that's inspired by the Holy Spirit and penned by Paul, and it's good for building a worldview upon. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks to the value of suffering in the life of a believer. In two weeks, we're going to start a series on Peter. For five weeks, we're going to talk about suffering. Doesn't that sound neat? We're, going to f- we're actually going to talk about the hope that's found in the midst of suffering. So that'll actually be neat. But all of 1 Peter is about suffering. First, Second Corinthians chapter 1 is about 
what comfort comes in the midst of suffering. Chapter 2 speaks about the value of forgiving those who offend us. Because the trick is this. If offenses can build up in our heart, if outrage can build up in our hearts, right? Then the the enemy's got a foothold. He has a way to drag us down, make us bitter. And so he talked about that. Those were worldview type things. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 3, a persuasive argument from Paul hammering home that the old ways of thinking... The old ways of thinking fall short of what's going to be required for us to walk out our faith with Jesus. Ed Stetzer, in his book, advocates for wisdom in our actions, interactions on the Internet, calls for discernment in our face-to-face interactions with people and for others who hold different worldviews. And with that said, espousing a biblical worldview today, or in Paul's time, will draw opposition. It's gonna, so we just need to be prepared for it. Jesus said it would. So that's why I have peace. That's why I have joy. That's why I have calm delight, because when I face opposition, I know that so did he. It's not a license to treat people bad. Well, they're just, I'm just treat, they're just treating me that way. I can say whatever I want. I know I'm gonna get opposition. No. We speak the truth in love, and opposition will still come. But we continue to speak the truth in love. So Jesus had some haters. Paul, had the first century equivalent of some internet trolls. He wrote a letter, some people got really mad about it and posted all their stuff. So Paul had to write another letter. Trolls are out there. It exists. This is the world we live in. And Jesus loves all the people, all the trolls. He loves them all. So Paul's opposers, in this instance, wanted him to produce his letters. That's the context that we're going to read in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. They didn't actually, well, we don't know if you're Paul or not, so we need to see some documentation, sir. Show us your letters. Show us that you actually wrote these letters. And it's just opposition. You ever try to do something and just dumb stuff gets in the way? This was a dumb stuff thing. This wasn't prison. This wasn't execution. This was like getting to the border and having a grumpy border crossing agent. Yeah, I want to see more documentation. I don't believe it. This is what Paul is facing in the context of this letter. We will always face opposition when the gospel is advancing. So we're going to read here the first six verses in 2 Corinthians 3 to get started. This is Paul in that context. He's asking the Corinthians, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some other people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? For you, for you, this is interesting how he swings this, you yourself are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the m- result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the li- living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is a Christ-centered biblical worldview. I am the message, Paul says. I'm the message. You're the message 
I'm the message, you're the message. My life and your life testify to the reality that apart from Jesus, apart from his death, apart from his resurrection, apart from the extension of grace, apart from those things, I am bankrupt and I have nothing apart from Jesus. But you're the message. It's written on your hearts. I don't need some letter. This isn't the law. This is the spirit. And it's not written on tablets. It's written on our hearts. Where is Paul deriving all of this from? It says a new covenant is brewing. A new covenant is coming. The title here that was added later, the greater glory of the new covenant. What is that? What's the new covenant that Paul is talking about? It's like a pour over. There's a picture of a, when I'm thinking about a new covenant is brewing, I think we got an image here. Right. This is what I think of a brew, right? Like something's brewing. Something's coming. You can smell it. There's an aroma. There's an excitement. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, is that a good place to be sitting? For me, it is. Now, you can brew, brew in a Keurig, and that's fine and all. Or you can go up to Narrative Coffee, right, just up the street, pay $7 for a drip coffee, but they'll make it for you just like that. It's a pour-over. It's slow. It's handcrafted. They'll tell you the beans are so much better, and that's why they charge $7 for a cup of drip coffee. But they'll tell you all about, they're like coffee degrees up there, man. You can't, you ask for a dark roast, they're like, we don't burn our beans. <laughs> I like dark roast. <laughs> this new covenant is brewing. It's handcrafted. It's intentional. God is up to something new, and it's not a Keurig where you slap it in and walk away. God stands over what he creates, a new covenant, a new excitement for believers in Jesus. Well, what's a covenant? Why is Paul even talking about this idea of a new covenant? A covenant is an agreement that God makes with his people. He's always done it. It sounds a little bit like this. Hey, kids, um, if you do this, then I'll do that. Right? A lot of these covenants have have circumstances to them, right? There's got to there's be something on our end. That sounds a little bit like what I did when my kids were little, like, all right, guys, if you just go to bed, I'll buy you whatever you want, right? A little different than what God is doing because that kind of self-centered world has my own best interests at mind. I just want them to go to sleep. So I will give them whatever they want so they'll just go to sleep. How much will it cost me to get what I want? That's one kind of agreement, if this, then that. But what God did was very different. What God promises sounds like this, because he has our, our best interests in mind. Do this so that you will thrive. I'm going to set up this agreement with you. If you do this, then you will thrive. Because, bro, I don't need to sleep. I'm God, right? It's different. When I'm exhausted, I want my kids to go to bed. God doesn't need that. He, he never needs to slumber. He rests, but he doesn't, he doesn't sleep. He's never unconscious. He goes, I love you, and I want you to thrive. Would you just receive that for a minute? Just where you're sitting, wherever you're at, hearing God pour this new handcrafted covenant over you, and the heart behind it is, I love you, and I want you to thrive. God made a covenant agreement with his people over and over and over again. The one that Paul is referencing here starts to reference is about the covenant that he made with Moses at Mount Sinai that's found in Exodus 19. 
when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to the Israelites who were wandering around in the desert, free from Egypt, but not quite to the promised land yet. Even in the midst of the wandering and the transition that we might feel that we are in as believers in Jesus, between the place where we wanted to be and the place where he's taking us, feels like a wilderness, and God is there with us, guiding us, telling us, I love you and I want you to thrive. He made a covenant. The Ten Commandments. Sometimes people feel a little nervous about the Ten Commandments, because why? Well, we break most of them. Ron Mel, former pastor of Beaverton Foursquare in the Portland, Oregon area, who passed a number of years ago from cancer, wrote a book called The Tender Commandments. See that? Play on words? Tender, right? The Tender Commandments. What was he supposing? What was he hoping we'd understand is that the, temp- the commandments, the Ten Commandments, weren't designed to control or manipulate us, but to shield us from everything that would seek to tear us down in life. Moses recorded the loving instructions on tablets of stone. Loving instructions, not suggestions. They're instructions. They're commandments. It's not an option, but it's loving. But in their impatience, down at the bottom of the mountain, the Israelites got impatient, so they built idols. Moses came down with these two stones. He was so excited, and these people were turning bracelets and, and watches and trophies and all sorts of stuff. They're just turning it into idols, lifeless idols, cows, calves, worshiping, bowing down when the real God of all things is right up there, and he's mad. But I would suggest that even in his anger, it was submitted to the Spirit. So it wasn't outrage. But Moses was mad, and he broke the tablets, but he was still under the influence of the Spirit. Because if he wasn't, he'd gone outraged and put something on his Twitter feed and broke relationships and headed back to Egypt. Or off to the promise. I don't know where he'd have gone. That would have been outrage. Outrage would have been destructive. Anger submitted to the Spirit in this set of circumstances brought reconciliation. That's what we need to think about when we want to get outrageous about things. If we submit it to the Spirit, it will bring reconciliation, a lost world back to the Father who created them. Anger. So he got angry. We've got that verse. I want to read it to you. What happened after he got angry? So in his anger, he went back up the mountain. He sought the face of God again. He received new tablets, but this time it was even better. He's coming down the mountain now. The start in Exodus 19, it goes through a bunch of stuff. We'll get to Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. His face was radiant. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given them on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Back to 2 Corinthians 3, now in verse 7, with all of this context in mind. 
Paul referring back to these things because he himself is a Jew. His great, 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 grandpappy was making cows at the bottom of the mountain. They were. This is all real. This like really happened. So Paul says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, right? We saw some glory. If that came with glory, but ultimately it would bring death, because Jesus wasn't in that. I mean, he was, but it wasn't fulfilled. If that came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitionary as it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitionary came with glory, how much greater is the glory which will last? He's just saying over and over. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not outraged, we are bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains over the old covenant. There's a worldview that many ascribe to that says, I still have to do this in my own strength. People live under that guilt, that pressure. For them it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. <clears throat> See, Paul's conclusion wasn't that Moses put a veil over his face to protect the Israelites from the dazzling light, like it would damage their pupils. He kept the veil on so they wouldn't become preoccupied by a plan of salvation that was still in works. It wasn't done yet. Don't get too pre- You can like this, but it, don't buy it because it's going to get better. Don't buy this. Use it as a guide, but keep going. Right? You ever tempted to settle for less? This is pretty good. God says there's more, then we go for more. This right here is pretty good. This South Everett Foursquare Church is really good, but it ain't the full picture yet. Right? We could settle. We could stop. But I don't want to. It's going to take work. It's going to take faith. It's going to take exercise and discipline to keep going to reach kids and people who have different worldviews because they don't know any better. To keep going. To see the kingdom of God expanded and advanced. We could stop with the old. But I got a bigger vision. We have a bigger vision. He has a bigger vision. So we keep on going. Don't settle for this. That's why he put the veil over. He goes, don't get infatuated with this. I have more for you. Why a biblical worldview? How come? Why is that even important? That's what a biblical worldview is. It's where it comes from. Why a biblical worldview? 
think we got a picture we can put up. 9-11-2001. This gentleman, a part of the New York City Fire Department, a detective, sorry, New, New York Police Department, a detective in the police department is near Ground Zero, goes in and spends two weeks at the base of Ground Zero rescuing, saving, reclaiming, making things better than they were. He went with purpose to rescue and transform. That was 18 years ago. There was a lot of things that people breathed in at Ground Zero that was really toxic, This hero, weeks ago, goes to Congress to testify for the 9-11 First Responders Act with Jon Stewart, who's a comedian who really championed this thing, that we have to take care of those who are dying on 9-11. He testified, he died, and the bill got passed to take care of first responders. What a hero. Never did he think as being a hero, he might go and breathe in something that might be toxic to him while he was being a hero, right? Why a biblical worldview for people who already believe in Jesus? Why can't we just... Because in our good works, in our faith prompted by Christ, go out into a world, we will breathe stuff in. We will breathe toxicity in. We will start to believe things that aren't true because of the media that we watch, the movies that we watch, the things that we see, the way people act. Someone will suggest something different. And we'll be like, oh, that sounds kind of good. Unless we're here. Unless we have a filter. They, these heroes didn't know they needed filters. They didn't know. We need filters to go into the world. The Word is our filter. Or we start believing things that aren't quite true. And society starts coming undone. And things get a little bit more confused. But we stand on the the word with the convictions that God has given us. Right? That's also biblical, which comes from a worldview that Paul espouses, not this time to those in Corinth, but to those this time in Colossus. Same message, different people. So then, because there was culture, people were breathing in. Paul says, so then... This is Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in strength, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive. Nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition in the elements of spiritual forces in this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, we have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. These things, these statements, these are worldviews. For in Christ, all the fullness of God, all of God lives in bodily form in Jesus. That's a worldview. It wasn't part of God that came down. It was all of God. It's actually the only time that God has ever been on earth as a human breathing our air was in Jesus. Not in any other God. Compassion and grace and love to everyone who follows a different God but the name of Jesus. We love, we serve, 
we build relationship with and we point to the only time God ever came to earth. That's what makes Christianity different. God came to us. It wasn't a pursuit of him, which is religion. He came to us. That's a worldview. He's the head over every power and authority. That'll make it easier to vote next year. Whoever wins. It's not a political message. We're not a political church. We serve the city, and that maybe we're political. But we seek the peace and prosperity of the city, and as the city prospers, we will prosper. And we know, because we have a biblically framed worldview, that even whoever is elected, Jesus is over that. So we're good. We're actually just fine. No need to be outraged. Right? These are messages that we can share with our friends. I'm not preaching this series because I think that someone here is some sort of like political cannon fireball that I'm like, I'm preaching to one person here. I don't think we're like this. But we all know people who are going to get really hot about this stuff on both sides. What if we said, you know what? Thank you for sharing where you're coming from. I've actually got a lot of peace about this. Can I tell you why? I got peace. Because my life was changed by Jesus, and the Bible says, which I actually believe is the the word of God, it's crazy because it saved me and it changed me. Jesus is over all of this. This isn't my home. And there's a way that you could be relieved from some stress. This is why we're having this conversation. So that we can help others. So that we can be peace and prosperity for those who are panicking. No fault of their own. Their worldview says that politics are it. I will always honor the U.S. flag. Always. But ain't it? It's not the full thing. It gives me freedom. I'll honor it. But Jesus, right? Have those discussions. But some people have been mistakenly confused and convinced that the United States of America is the end all. It ain't. God ordained it. But ain't, ain't it? Right? So we can settle down about these things. We need this 2020 vision unveiled in 2020 to keep us from falling after a veiled philosophy grounded in the best ideas of people fanned into flame by spiritual forces opposing Jesus. We need him because everything about this world is going to try and convince us otherwise. What we see can appear to be the reality. As we close, I just want to show you this video about reality. Anyone into virtual reality yet? Like that thing where you put the goggles on and you go into some... Nobody yet? Okay, so wait, pause the video real quick. Pause it. Pause it. I'm going to just explain this. So downtown uh, in Ballard, actually, there's this place called Porthole, and you go down. Chris Manginelli and our sons went uh, a couple months ago, and it's a video arcade, but they're like, it's not video games, man. It is virtual reality because you put on this headset, and everywhere you look in this thing is the other thing. You got, And they put you in a padded room um, because when you're fighting orgs, we're like in medieval days, and you put your hands in front of you because you got you know, controllers, and you see your hands come together, but they're not your hands. They're like cartoon hands, and you pull this arrow back, and then this nine-foot org comes running at you with an axe, right? And so you're trying to shoot him, and he's trying to throw the axe at you, and what you... I know that I'm in a padded room. <laughs> I, I know... I, I actually know I'm in a padded room, but I go down there, and this org is coming at me, and my, and my friends are watching me in this padded room with these goggles on my face, and it throws the axe, and I go, wow! And I like, fall on the ground, and they're laughing at me because that ain't real. But I've convinced myself by what I've seen that it is reality and I'm acting funny, right? So then there's this other thing that you get to do. 
which is the video here. You get to stand on a little platform, and then there's a plank that's eight feet long in front of you, and it's this high off the ground. You put those funny goggles back on, and you hear the music, and you see the street, and there's cars going by, and then these elevator doors shut. And then the elevator music comes on, and you see yourself start. There's a little crack, so you can see what's going on. You see yourself going up, 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 and then it opens up on the 50th floor of a skyscraper. And you look, ah! Half the men that go to this place will not step out on a platform that's eight inches wide and two inches off the ground because what their eyes are telling them. But I walked out, right? And then when you get to the end, you'll see this, you're supposed to step off. And when you step off, reality virtually tells you that you're falling towards the concrete at 100 miles an hour. This is what a person who knows in their mind that they are two inches off the ground in a padded room when they put some funny goggles on. So check this out. That is what a lie presented to us as truth will do to us. It makes us act funny. Biblical worldviews. We'll all go down. We get $5. You can do that. We'll take videos of all. It's going to be so great. We'll see if Rich Titus will step off the plank. <laughs> it's all fun and games, but it's, it's true. When we, get, when we get something that looks like truth that isn't truth, we just start acting funny. When we start believing that Whatever happens in the world around us is the end game and Jesus isn't king. We start getting real outrageous. We, we start doing real goofy things. And, it, and sometimes it ain't goofy. It breaks down relationships. It hurts people, right? So what can we do? Ed Stetzer, in his book on page 144, you can actually buy this for 10 bucks in the back uh, to read along with us. Some people have said it's a challenging read, and, and I suppose I'm okay with that because um, we're going we're gonna to challenge each other. Ed Stetzer says, In thinking through the challenge of spiritual disciplines... In the age of outrage, I find the prophet Jeremiah instructive. Perhaps no other biblical author had greater reason to throw up his hands and give up. At the best of times, he was simply ignored. At the worst of times, he brought universal persecution. Was brought to him. God gave him a message of rebuke and warning for his people, but they ignored him to carry on with their ways of injustice. After calling the Jewish people back to God, Jeremiah famously wept when they rejected him, so he knew, especially when it was their final warning, that he had to let them go. In one of the saddest passages of Scripture, Jeremiah wrote, My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. The old prophet's admonition comes early in the book and hearkens its way Back to the old ways. Thus saith the Lord in Jeremiah 6.16, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient path, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Walter Brueggemann rightly noted that Jeremiah is not calling us back to a nostalgic return to old-time religion. That's not what we're going back to. It is a return to the theological traditions that are centered on the formation of a correct world view the practice of spiritual disciplines how do we do better simple he goes on to say that through scripture we hear christ's voice speaking in the outrage giving us wisdom rather than forcing us to seek it from the chaotic mess that comes through scripture through prayer we cast our anxieties and fears upon christ rather than pouring them into a vat of outrage through worship, we can remind our soul where it is that we're to submit ourselves to. Through fasting, we remind ourselves that the soul's dependence upon Christ and the insufficiency of everything else is key. 
So when we read the Word, when we pray, when we worship, it makes our vision right again. It got a little blurry sometimes, so we put the glasses back on. This is what he's called us to, a biblical worldview. These are conversations we want to keep having because we're going to be equipped starting now for the next 18 months. The harvest field is ripe. right? We can engage politics without being political. We can engage politics with the peace and prosperity that, that Jesus gives us. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Hmm. We pray in advance, Lord, for the work that you're doing in this nation. Lord, we pray in advance for the work you're doing around the world. We thank you, Lord, that the world is now sending missionaries to the United States of America because it recognizes what we don't yet, which is we've let you slip off the throne. And we're not going to get mad about it. We're just going to get on our knees about it. We're going to seek your word about it. We're going to worship you about it. We're going to fast about it. And then we're going to go have some conversations. It's going to be fun, Lord. It's going to be fun to lovingly engage with our neighbors in the midst of outrage and love people where they're at. Lord, we give you this week, this time, this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you, church. We will see you next Sunday. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.